a patient of mine dreamt the other day about a five-story house that she was uh, in. And the first three levels, she said, were finished. She was now working on the fourth level and the fifth level st still needed to be done. Mm. Uh, she's a lady in her 60s. She's lived a full life. She's about in the fourth in the fourth floor and she still has the fifth one to go. I think she has a long life ahead of her. Mm. But as you move through life, you um, complete more and more of this uh, uh, assessment or um, become more conscious of the various parts of yourself if you pay attention. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. Don't <laughs> want to know about it. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to season three of The Hidden World. My first guest this season is the incomparable Dr. Murray Stein. Dr. Stein received a Master of Divinity from Yale University and a PhD in Religion and Psychological Studies from the University of Chicago. He holds a diploma in Analytical Psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the C.G. Jung Institute of Zurich. Dr. Stein was one of the founding members of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and a founding member and the first president of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. I will commence my own training to become a Jungian analyst at the Jung Institute of Chicago this fall. And for many of us Chicago-based Jungians, Murray Stein is a household name. Dr. Stein has also served as the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and the president of the International School of Analytical Psychology in Zurich, Switzerland, where he currently resides, practices, and teaches. Dr. Stein has published so many brilliant books and articles on analytical psychology that it was only a matter of time before demand for a volume of his collected works would emerge. I recently read the third volume of his collected works entitled Transformations. While reading it, I felt so moved by the content of this volume that I reached out to Dr. Stein to see if he would be willing to speak to me on the topic of transformation. To my delight, he agreed. I've heard it said that we should never meet our heroes, but it was an absolute honor to meet Dr. Stein. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. Let me start with this question. Um, from a psychological perspective, what is transformation? Well, the ordinary meaning of the word is change. Uh, it means that something is changing. Uh, so if a, um, for instance, if a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, we say it's a transformation. Uh, the form of the insect that was takes on a new form and that change is called a transformation. So usually the word transformation means a, a big change, not just a small change. If we say that a person transforms, we mean they've really changed. I mean, you can recognize them, they still have the same smile, they have the same tone of voice, fingerprints and so on, but their attitude has changed so much that you notice it and you say, wow, what happened to you? You know, uh, you seem like a different person. And this sometimes happens to people who um, 
it happened to me. Uh, I, I went into analysis when I was quite young in my 20s and I, I came to Switzerland and I was gone for four years. And when I came back and I met my former friends, they noticed a big difference. They said, what in the world happened to you? You know, mm -hmm. I didn't notice it myself that much, you know, because it goes step by step. But as you discover uh, certain hidden parts of yourself or repressed or forgotten or neglected, and you bring them more forward and you integrate them with who you are now, it uh, partly changes your character, your personality, your outlook, your attitude. So the word transformation covers a lot of ground, but generally we mean quite a, a big change in a person's attitude toward life, toward themselves, toward others. And uh, that's what we try to uh, bring uh, into, into a pro <clears throat> process in analysis to uh, elicit um, a change process. The other thing to say about transformation though is it doesn't change a person into something they never were. It brings out latent qualities that were always there. Mm -hmm. uh, so the way I speak about transformation in my book, um, Transformation, Emergence of the Self, it's an emergence of something that was potential and it becomes actual or realized uh, in the course of this development. Sometimes it's a short uh, and a very intense period of time that that change takes place. Sometimes it's a much longer mm -hmm. period of time, but it's it's bringing out uh, what you've always been, but in a way didn't know you were or hadn't realized and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, brought into um, uh, realization, as we say. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate in your book the way you talk about how um, the emergence of the self is not this limitless potential to realize any um, idealized or desired version of a self that, you know, there are limits um, to the psyche the way there are limits to the body. You may want to be Michael Jordan, I think is what you say, <laughs> and then not, not actually have the physicality to, to pull the same feats. Um, similarly, you can only transform into what you're saying to me now, that which has always been there. Yeah, what your potentials are. <clears throat> Michael Jordan had the potential, was born with the potential to be a great basketball player, and he realized that potential. Um, Yehudi Menuhin was born with the potential to become a great violinist, mm -hmm. and he became that in the course of his life. So uh, it's what you have from the beginning that you uh, work with and you develop and you bring out more and more in a psychological sense you know you're born with a self uh, but it develops in the course of your life uh, comes into your consciousness and into your behavior uh, in stages so we speak of stages of development each one is transformative mm. adolescence transforms your not only your body but uh, your social life, your interests, a lot of uh, parts of your personality and uh, midlife the same, it's a transformation period. So there are these intense periods of uh, 
change in the course of a life of the individuation process, as we call it, where a lot of transformation is going on, but it's simply bringing out what you've always been uh, latently and making it more manifest. Yeah. You, you mentioned several really prominent figures and the transformations they went through. And um, when I was reading about how often that process started for them at the age of 37, mm. I thought I should mention to you that I'm 37. <laughs> So I am <laughs> bracing myself <laughs> for some kind of radical deconstruction. Um, so another question I have for you um, is what are the conditions that allow these transformative processes to happen to us? Well, there are conditions that block it. Uh, let's start with that. Um, so if you are in a, in a, say, in an abusive marriage, speaking to women now, and I've known quite a number of these who've gotten trapped in a, an abusive uh, family situation, either you can be born into it or you're trapped into it by mistaken uh, partnering. Um, uh, it, uh, it prevents you from, uh, it's a condition that prevents you from developing and you will feel that. You will feel frustrated, you feel angry, you know, your, your temper flares too quickly and you notice there's something pressing and something you need to do. And if it's really abusive, of course, uh, that's a, uh, a situation where you have to take action um, quite dramatically often. So uh, breaking out of these conditions that um, prevent development might be uh, an issue for people. Um, in a way, um, society, you know, and culture help us to develop. We couldn't do it without culture and tradition. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, they can also um, arrest development. Religions can do that. Mm -hmm. You know, religions are very good uh, to a point, and then you can get stuck and you get stuck at a, a level of development that is, say, basically adolescent, very literalistic, concrete. Um, and a part of you goes on and develops in a different way, but that gets stuck. Mm -hmm. So people get stuck in their, uh, in their cultures and they need to break out of them, or we say separate, you know. So a part of the individuation process is to separate from identifications and dependencies um, on situations that um, um, uh, block your growth, okay? It doesn't mean they're bad. Sometimes they, they mean well, but you have to grow beyond your family of origin. You have to grow beyond your relationships sometimes. Um, and uh, uh, I would say the conditions that facilitate um, development are we try to set up a, a situation in therapy, that's the condition I'm most familiar with, that um, encourages development. And how do we do that? Well, we, we remove the element of judgment. Mm -hmm. When you go into therapy, therapist is not meant to judge you, judge your behavior. Are you good or bad? They might make a diagnosis. Uh, they might see problems. They might help you 
to um, speak about those problems, but they aren't there to judge it. They're there to create a space that is free, a free and sheltered space, we call it. Okay. And in that free and sheltered space with a person who um, is on your side, basically, and, and on the side of your growth, not, not, not your arrest, uh, not trying to keep you in your place, but allow you to grow. That's a condition that helps people grow. Now, in infancy, what helps an infant grow? It's a mother that smiles, that interacts, that, that connects, attaches, you know, that helps the infant grow. If the infant doesn't have that, its growth is uh, stunted. So environment is very important. Conditions are very important. Uh, but sometimes we also have to step beyond the conditions and make some new conditions for ourselves. Politically, I would say, the conditions that, that make for a, a growing culture are, are freedom, you know, freedom to freedom of choice, uh, freedom of expression, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what we um, need to um, feel uh, uh, in our surrounding culture. And when that's not there, then um, you know, we, we have situations like we have today where there's splitting, there's division, people are entrenched and angry. That's not a growing culture. That's a culture in crisis. Mm -hmm. It might be the, the forerunner of a new growth. Sometimes growth does take a, uh, there is a phase which is conflicted where, where opposites uh, emerge and are strongly constellated against each other. And out of that uh, opposition, a third possibility emerges that goes beyond either of those two. So sometimes conflict isn't a bad thing. We hope that the conflict that we have today in many countries in the world will eventually lead to a, a third possibility beyond you know, that level of conflict. But it's a tense time right now, culturally. Mm -hmm. and, uh, people feel that. But back to your question, the conditions of, uh, for uh, growth, transformation, individuation are basically, I think, um, a surrounding world that um, tolerates uh, um, uh, the individual uh, to um, not uh, to any extreme, but to experiment, to feel free to try new behaviors, new attitudes, um, not to foreclose too quickly on identity. Mm. Those are um, important conditions for growth development. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a bit ago that after you had been in analysis um, for four years, you came back to the States and, and people had recognized that you were very different. Um, and and I, I do think a lot about how, you know, in particular in my own experience too, um, the, the most meaningful transformation of my adult life um, was in my first analysis. And the, the transformation that that was possible was partly about this, um, you know, environment of non judgment and of curiosity. 
and also there was, um, you know, when, in your book, when you talk about the caterpillar and the chrysalis and the butterfly as an example or a, um, of a transformative process, you, you spend a lot of time focusing on pupation, you know, and um, the radical deconstruction of the caterpillar of the larva. Um, and, and it did also feel to me like the, the transformation in analysis was, was also largely this kind of painful, it felt more like a descent, you know, like a descent into my own psychic material. Um, and, and I think a lot about how unusual it is to find a space and a place where you can do that as an adult. Um, and, you know, I would say that even in therapy, it's not always possible. Like there's something quite different about analysis. Um, and, um, and, and when, when I talk about dissent or um, a surrender, uh, I, I think I, I mean to kind of lead us to, to my next question, which is who or what directs transformation? You know, it, it doesn't feel like an, like an ego process where, you know, you decide you're going to become wonderful. <laughs> and, then, and then you take a bunch of courses and read a bunch of self-improvement books and, you know, eat a Mediterranean diet. <laughs> it's different yeah. and there's a kind of um there's something kind of pulling and dragging the ego into this well it's a <clears throat> what directs um, the individuation process i mean we have a theory that speaks about that and it says there's a spiritus rector so it means a guiding spirit in your psyche, okay, that knows where you need to go. Now you can block it or you can go with it. Um, Dante, at the age of 37, mm -hmm. <laughs> lost in a dark wood, you know, and um, he didn't know what, what to do. There were three animals that blocked his way forward. There was a lion, a, a leopard, and a, and a very hungry wild pig, I think it was. That was greed. And um, he couldn't go forward and he didn't know what to do. So um, Beatrice sent him a guide. Now Beatrice saw his dilemma. What is Beatrice? Mm. It's that part of you that knows you're in trouble mm. and you need help. So she sends a guide and that's Virgil, uh, the great Latin poet. And Virgil then takes him into the underworld and they go down through the inferno and eventually into purgatorio and then to paradiso. So he has a guide and then Beatrice takes over and he has more guides. But ultimately uh, what guides the whole process is um, a spiritus rector that speaks through these various figures. Mm. They know where Dante needs to go mm. and they somehow help him along the way. Now, how does that work in real life? I mean, that, it's a beautiful story and it's, it's magnificent poetry. 
and we can learn a lot from it. But in real life, we also get guides. Um, uh, and especially when we get stuck and uh, Jungians, you know, are a little bit on the mystical side. They say, well, it's synchronicity. Mm. It, it happens, you meet somebody mm -hmm. or somebody suggests something. Um, when I was, um, I think 23 years old, I was at a garden party and we were discussing um, a topic, um, uh, this was in the middle of the Vietnam War. We were discussing why do nations go to war? What's, war is so much a part of history and why is that so necessary for human beings to engage in? And um, there was a woman at this party and she had written a book called Journey Inward, Journey Outward. And she had used Jung's ideas and she said, well, you really should read Jung uh, about projection of the shadow. Wow. And you might get an idea of why people go to war. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I'd heard Jung's name, but um, um, never, you know, in my um, college days and so on, he was mentioned in passing, but we didn't uh, do very much with it. I went out to the bookstore the next day and uh, asked them if they had any of Jung's works there. And they had one book that was called Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and it's Jung's autobiography. Mm. And mm. Uh, that book changed my life. Oh. I was stuck uh, in a going in a direction that I knew wasn't quite right, but I didn't know how stuck I was until I read that book and then I, I discovered dreams. Mm. And uh, one thing led to another and I, I never looked back and I ended up in Zurich uh, studying Jungian psychoanalysis. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. Um, so that moment, uh, uh, these things just drop into your lap. Yeah. Uh, I understand. When, um, when I was 24, um, I left New York City. Um, I knew that I was psychologically unwell. I knew I needed to go to therapy. And I called my aunt who lives in Chicago still. And she had been the only person in the whole family system that I had ever known that had been to therapy. And I asked her for advice on how to find a therapist um, in Kansas City. I was, I was gonna go back to Kansas City for a year. And she said, well, I think you should start with an Adlerian because at this point in your life, your family system is most of what has shaped you. And she said, and then after that, maybe you can find a Jungian. <laughs> and I, I found the only Adlerian uh, psychotherapist in Kansas City who then encouraged me to, uh, encouraged me to explore um, graduate level psychology classes 
and then really encouraged me to apply to graduate school. And because I'd had this very positive experience, I decided to look at the Adler School in Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I moved there, I lived with my um, aunt and uncle for a bit. And my cousin was the administrative assistant at the Young Center in Evanston, Illinois. And she invited me to attend a public program. <clears throat> and then that was that. <laughs> you know? It's uh, angels just appear at certain moments in life when you need them. Yeah. And um, so I've, I've recently studied uh, Dante's um, Divine Comedy quite closely and I've written some things about it. And I think, um, you know, that uh, Beatrice up there in the heavens watching over our situation sends uh, little angels to us every now and then, guides exactly what we need when we need it. Yeah. And as I look back on my life now, it's quite a long life, mm. um, I can see these moments of uh, change and decisive change. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've noticed it in the lives of my patients, uh, people who come to Zurich to train often have had these experiences and that's why they arrive here. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you ask what, what leads the process or what guides the process, I think it's a, it's a kind of mysterious um, element in the psyche that Jung ended up naming synchronicity, uh, meaningful coincidences. Mm. Uh, and you, you know, at the right moment, somebody says something, and, but you have to do something with it. And yeah. you take yeah. the next step and that leads to another thing. And so that's what you followed. Yes, uh, and it ends up where you are now, ready to train to become a Jungian analyst. Yes, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> I I looked at the summer reading list. I have two small children, so I thought, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. It may take me a long time. Is it somehow? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in the first section of your book, um, your book is, seems to be in sort of four parts. And the first um, part is subtitled Emergence of the Self. Um, can you describe or define this concept of the self in the way that you and Jung use it? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a very important um thing to understand about Jungian psychology. Otherwise, you start thinking it's all about selfishness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're supposed to really focus a lot on the self. Um, um, the self uh, is to be distinguished from the ego. Uh, that's an important uh, differentiation. The ego is the center of our consciousness. When we say I, or we name ourselves, um, and we say um, uh, we have an intention to do something or go somewhere. Um, that's the I speaking. And that I is with us from the time we open our eyes as infants until the time we die. We are in that I. Mm -hmm. That I can change and grow and it develops. Um, um, but the I, uh, the word ego in Latin just means I. And when Freud, started writing about psychoanalysis, he used the word das ich, 
the the I in German it works in English it doesn't work very well to say the I so when it was translated from German to English they adopted the Latin term ego so we speak about the ego but it's really the I part of you mm. um, and um, uh, that I um, has a um, a dark background uh, it, there are things that I doesn't see. Mm -hmm. And I is looking forward. It isn't looking behind you. You don't see your back. Mm -hmm. uh, you need a mirror to see your back. And that mirror could be your analyst, could be your environment, could be what other people tell you about yourself that you don't realize. So we do things intentionally and we do things unintentionally. Um, we, we make mistakes that we don't intend to make. Uh, St. Paul says, that which I want to do, I cannot do. I do not do that which I do, I do not want to do. Mm -hmm. So we contradict ourselves. Mm -hmm. Why do we do that? Because there's a part of us that doesn't belong to the I, that's different from the I. Mm -hmm. And it has its own program, it has its own agenda, it has its own attitudes. And that was the beginning of psychoanalysis to investigate that dark place behind the eye, thing we don't see, we're not conscious of, and that was called the unconscious. Mm. The unconscious is what we are not aware of, but it's a part of us. So, and it sneaks out uh, behind us, trips us up, or does and says things that uh, we regret later. We get caught in uh, complexes, as we say, and so on. So it's what the psychoanalyst discovered was that we are very complex. We have this eye, but then we have a lot more that's hidden away in the shadows behind us or under us and around us. And um, those parts of the psyche, when you put them all together, all the pieces together, including the eye, that's what Jung called the self. Mm. The self is the totality of the psyche. The I is the center of consciousness, which is a part of a much larger picture of mm -hmm. the psyche. And to um, uh, try to um, become aware of all those other parts and integrate them, as we say, that, that means to become conscious of them, to um, bring them into relation with the, with the I, with the ego. Um, and uh, to uh, some of them are um, uh, things that we have uh, neglected or we have repressed, we push away under the carpet because they're painful or there are certain um, motives or uh, impulses that we don't like to acknowledge about ourselves, envy, pride, greed, seven sins mm. that Dante confronts as he goes through Purgatorio. Um, we don't want to look at those things. Uh, and uh, that's what Theon called the shadow. <clears throat> the shadow part of the ego is what the ego doesn't want to acknowledge. And in analysis, we look at that. Um, and we, it's, it's hard work, but it's necessary work in order to move on and, and to grow. And in the end, we want to take into account as much of this totality as we can. Mm. Um, and when Jung spent his life trying to investigate the, the unconscious. That's what his psychology is all about. Mm -hmm. What's there in this unknown mm -hmm. area? And so he had theories that would describe it. I wrote about that in a book called Jung's Map of the Soul. 
Yes. So that, that's his the roadmap that he laid out. If you want to know what's in the psyche and what all the ground that he covered, uh, and so he speaks about the complexes, the personal unconscious, and the archetypes, and the collective unconscious. And as you go deeper, it gets more primitive, um, and it's a it's a big uh, you know story. Sometimes you know. I'll dream about this um, uh, as a multi multi leveled house. Uh, a patient of mine dreamt the other day about a five-story house that she was uh, in. And the first three levels, she said, were finished. She was now working on the fourth level and the fifth level st still needed to be done. Mm. Uh, she's a lady in her 60s. She's lived a full life. She's about in the fourth in the fourth floor and she still has the fifth one to go. I think she has a long life ahead of her. Mm. But as you move through life, you... Um, complete more and more of this uh, uh, assessment or um, become more conscious of the various parts of yourself if you pay attention. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. I know. <laughs> don't want to know about it. <laughs> yeah. Stay in the ego, you know, and what I know, I know, and I don't want to know about the other stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Someone once said to me, I am trying to live an unexamined life. <laughs> Yes, right. <laughs> the less examination, the, yeah. the less painful. Because yes. at least at first, it's painful to look at those things. You know? Yes, at first. And then it's the greatest adventure I can imagine. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I am familiar with your book, Map of the Soul. I recently found out that you are... Um, you are an important figure and that book is important to the k-pop band bts yes <laughs> i i am not that hip to popular culture and so I, yeah. so I don't really know much about them but um but they i guess entitled their albums uh map of the soul and they're exploring persona shadow ego that's right. They've done three albums with those titles. <clears throat> um, I had never heard of them. They, you know, it's a Korean pop band, and it was very popular in Korea and Asia, and then it became popular now in America and, and Europe. And I first heard about them when a student at ISAP, where I teach in Zurich, a Japanese student came up to me and he said, um, "Oh, did you know that your book uh, was mentioned on?" Uh, on the BTS website, they're recommending it to their fans to read. And I said, what's BTS? <laughs> <laughs> and then they um, titled, uh, I think, two or three of their albums, uh, Map of the Soul. The first one was Persona. The second one was Shadow and Shadow and Ego. And then there was another one, I think. And I've I've done some podcasts about their uh, about their lyrics, which I find very interesting and very helpful to young people to understand these parts of the self. You know, the persona don't get too identified with it, and they've had to really struggle with that issue because they become celebrities. That can be a huge trap. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very impressed with their level of understanding of that concept. Also, the shadow. And they sing about that and ego. So I don't know where they'll take it from there, but that's as far as they've gone so far. But they're in their 20s. That's really quite remarkable. I've it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
it, it also reminds me like it's always right to put to put work out into the world and let it have um you know a life of itself and yes you never know what will happen with it yeah, yeah. um okay when in the section of your book where you talk about the um, emergence of the self, um, you, you talk about adulthood and midlife um, quite a bit. And in particular, you, you mention this phenomena um, that, that you call liminality or the betwixt and between part of um, the transformative process. You know, you've completed these tasks of, um, adolescence and early adulthood and perhaps arrive in a place where you're you are in between the tasks of of early life and the maybe you know generative um uh part of later life where um you you know, that, that, that is not realized yet. Um, and I identify with that. I think that, um, a lot of my peers and, uh, friends and probably a lot of the listeners to this podcast also relate to this, this arriving at this place where you, you've done a lot of things you think you should do you thought you should do and they may have all been mostly good and then there's this kind of creeping up tricky strange question or um, discomfort where it feels like maybe you look around and you're a little bored or you're thinking okay now what mm -hmm. um and, and I, I wonder if you might speak to this a little bit, um, how, how this can function as maybe even an initiatory stage in the transformative process. Um, yeah, I think it is an initiation. Um, each of the um, stages involves a, a period of initiation and the word liminality actually comes from <clears throat> anthropology, which talks about rites of passage. And I, I, I borrowed that term from uh, Victor Turner, who was a professor at the University of Chicago when I studied there. And um, he wrote about rites of passage among some of the uh, native peoples in Africa. And he got the idea, I think, of rites of passage from Arnold Van Gennep, who was a um, I think a French anthropologist or a British in the early part of the 20th century who studied the Aborigines, the Australian Aborigines, rites of passage from boyhood to manhood, which takes place around the age of 13. And he had divided it into three sections, separation, liminality, and reincorporation. And I applied this notion to midlife. Um, so I look on midlife as an initiation into mature adulthood, okay? First part is young adulthood, adolescence, young adulthood. And then there is this moment of ch change, a period of change, it may last uh, a couple of years, uh, three or four years. Um, and it shifts from apprenticeship to mastership, okay? Mm -hmm. 
first half of life is an apprenticeship. You're learning the ropes of culture. You're learning something about yourself and how you relate to culture. You build a persona, an ego, a family, a life. And then that's outer directed, more or less. Even if you're an introvert, it's outer directed. Mm -hmm. And the shift is toward more inner directed. That's very important for the second half of life. If you're involved in the world or in, 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 uh, in the arts or anything to move from looking to others for direction to looking deep within yourself for direction. It mm -hmm. becomes more inner directed. Mm -hmm. So the shift is from outer direction to inner direction. Mm. So all great artists have to find themselves. They have to find their voice. I, I talk about this in my book, uh, mm -hmm. Emergence of the Self. Uh, when writers talk about finding their voice, first they're apprentice, they copy other people. They write like, uh, you know, like Henry James, or they try to write like Shakespeare, which is a mistake, but <laughs> <laughs> they're copying. But that's, that's, that's learning. Mm -hmm. uh, Jung copied Freud to a certain point, and then he had to stop, and he had to find himself. Then he became Jung. Mm. Uh, that was his midlife transformation from a, being a Freudian to being a Jungian. Mm -hmm. He found himself through this very deep introspective process. He wrote about it. It's now published. It's called The Red Book, you know, and um, published in 2009. It's a fascinating book about his inner journey. But when he came out of that, he became a leader. Uh, he became the psychologist that we know. He had his own ideas. He was directed from within and not without. He found an inner teacher. He left Freud, his outer teacher, found Philemon, his mm -hmm. inner teacher, his inner guide. And then he could orient himself according to his own creative um, genius and not looking to others for direction. So that's the midlife transition. And in that period, there is this, what we call a liminality. It means betwixt and between, it's fluid. Mm -hmm. It's a period of fluidity. And your identity is somewhat fluid. It's it's a little unsettling for that reason. You're not quite sure who you are or what you are, or where you're going. And this it's sometimes a crisis, you know. And people um, have to withdraw for a period uh, from their normal activities and and um, go into therapy or go meditate for a while for a couple of years in Tibet or something. Mm -hmm. Um, to find themselves. And then they come out and they reemerge in the third stage called uh, reintegration or reincorporation, uh, Ben Genop's term, back into society. And then they can function as leaders, which is what we need in among our mature adults. We want leaders who have some good ideas and creative ideas and, and can lead uh, the, um, the generations forward. So um, I wrote that, I wrote, my first book actually was called In Midlife, and it was during my midlife period, and I was studying Van Genop and, uh, and uh, Victor Turner, and uh, my wife was at Northwestern going through uh, Northwestern University, I was at the University of Chicago, and she was going through a program in um, uh, clinical psychology, uh, and wrote her dissertation on midlife transitions in men and women, mm. 10 cases. So uh, she and I had a lot of conversations about this whole midlife thing. We were sort of in the middle of it ourselves. 
And then I looked at mythology, which I love Greek mythology. And I looked at Odysseus journey back home from Troy, 10 years in liminality, drifting around on the Mediterranean and all of his adventures. And, and I applied uh, some of the ideas of Jung and depth psychology to those, the discovery of the anima, Circe, you know, temptress, dangerous, but uh, also transformative. And uh, I think it's very important for men to discover their anima in mm. life. And that's more than just a, a kind of um, projection onto a pretty girl, but, you know, let's go have some fun. It's, uh, it really, the anima will lead him uh, deeply into himself and into his emotional life, into his other side. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and for women, uh, it's, we, we talk about discovering the animus that would be the, the philosopher, the teacher, the uh, spiritual guide, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and so that then takes, takes you into the adventure of the second half of life, which is, I think, much better than the first half, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know the ropes a little better, and you have more resources, and a little bit of wisdom to guide you. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great adventure, second half of life. Yeah. And yet you would say um, that great adventure in the second half of life is, is maybe uniquely available if we, if we are willing to do this work of transformation. Yes. Um, I think it's Jung's great contribution to uh, suggest and really to show that the uh, um, uh, psychological and spiritual development continues uh, after youth and midlife into old age and deep old age. And if you read Jung's autobiography, which was the first of his books that I read, he shows that whole picture uh, from youth, from birth to childhood, to adolescence, to Freud, and after and second half of life, and all his creative experiences. So you get a picture of life as a journey, the whole of life, as long as you live, it never ends. There's always more to discover. And the resource that we have is dreams and imagination. Those are the great resources that give us access to the unconscious. Yeah. I cannot tell you how uh, satisfying it was to discover um, that my early childhood instincts <laughs> Um, were right on as far as the value of dreams and imagination. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and that there was a Western grounded psychological theory <laughs> to support this. Yeah, it combines imagination with reality testing. You know, I mean, it isn't an either or. You need them both. Right. And, uh, the ego development is developing your reality testing. A mature ego can you know, make sense of reality and adjust. But without imagination, it can't be creative. Uh, it's got to have access to this other side. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the anima and the, and the animus. Um, and um, I may, you know, edit in some definitions to that for the uninitiated on those terms. Um, but 
I would say that in, in my early experience trying to understand Jung, those two concepts were the hardest for me to really wrap my brain around. Um, there was a part of me that understood the anima better. I, I understood that I, I could assess very easily that many of the men that I knew would benefit tremendously from integrating a feminine aspect of <laughs> lived in the unconscious, you know? Um, and, and it wasn't until very recently, I, I did this um, active imagination um, with myself. I, I was feeling caught in some kind of, coming out of the pandemic, like post vaccines and trying to re-engage with the world, I felt very emotionally strange. Um, and, and so eventually I decided I would try to just kind of go go in and, and see what images would come up. Um, and to make this brief, I, I wound up many minutes into this um, act of imagination, uh, having these, you know, two parts of me sort of um, that had been combined kind of spin out and then recombine. Um, and one was like kind of a, like a maleficent dark uh, witchy creature. And one was like an angel. And, um, and, and so they had been, they had been intertwined and then they kind of came apart and I could see them both clearly. And then they re, they sort of spun around each other and then they, they became this like wooden walking staff. And then there was suddenly a man holding it. And I thought, oh, <laughs> oh <I see>. there <laughs> you are. <laughs> the, the philosopher, the teacher, I could, I, for the first time really, really connect to that inner image. Um, and, you know, and, and I have been looking at this idea of anonymous for years and, and really not felt connected to it. It, it's a different, uh, Jung isn't very good when he writes about the animus. It, it's sort of stereotypic and, and time bound. Um, so there's been a lot of debate and discussion whether it was just sort of sexism, um, but he assigned, you know, the animus to the unconscious of women and the anima to unconscious of men. But I think if you read the late Jung, you see what he's trying to do, uh, and that is to bring them together. Mm that they separate and they come together. Hmm. Uh, um, at the beginning, they are together. It's a syzygy, he calls mm -hmm. it a syzygy. And then they separate. And a person identifies usually more with one than with the other. And mm -hmm. the other remains unconscious and then has to be brought into consciousness. Hmm. So what you discovered with that man with this holding the stick is uh, yeah, a figure of the animus. Um, that would be a, a, a guide or a teacher. The word animus means spirit. Mm -hmm. It's a spiritual guide. That's mm -hmm. what the animus is. Mm -hmm. Anima means soul. Mm -hmm. And anima is more associated with the moon, moonlight, lunar consciousness, uh, emotion, intuition, imagination. And the animus is more associated with clarity, the sun, daytime, uh, logic, you know, 
clear thinking, but and you need them both uh, eventually. So you you tend to go more in one direction at one stage of life, and then you have to pick up the other one later. The whole question of gender is so um, fluid today with LGBT and all, and and young people, you know, I mean, saying, I'm not sure uh, if I want to be a boy or a girl. When I was that age, I was that wasn't something you thought about. You are, you you know, you're this or you're that. Yeah. I think um, uh, masculine, feminine has been separated from biological gender. So whatever your biological gender is, you can kind of choose and and match and you know uh, make your own way. It's more individual. Yeah. Uh, and so the development may be more individual too. It may yeah. not. This sort of first this then that, but yeah. more uh, androgynous all along. If you look at BTS, they are beautiful. Yeah, they are very feminine, but they are boys, and it's yes. clear they're boys. But they uh, look and dance and act like beautiful young girls, and you don't know. And yeah. that's part of the intrigue about them. It makes them fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the. The idea here, though, remains what you were saying earlier, which is there's an I, and then yes. a not, and then a not I, mm -hmm. and a big part of the adventure is trying to get to know the not I. Yes. Are you familiar with Neil Douglas Klotz? Um, he's a Aramaic scholar and writer, or he uh, he studies, he translates and and teaches. Um, from an Aramaic expertise. Um, so he he's written some, some books about what Jesus said, um, yeah. according to Aramaic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have no way of verifying this, but I find it really compelling. One of the things I learned from him by, um, by reading some of what he's written is that um, in Aramaic, you cannot say the the phrase I am because there's no verb for being. Um, and so in the earliest Aramaic um, text about what Jesus said, which he spoke Aramaic um, when he taught and preached, the they have it written I, I, like what, when Jesus, the translation that we get is, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But according to this scholar, he said it's more, it's more likely that he said, I, like little I, I, big I, is the way, the truth, and the light. Like this, oh, this I and other I. <laughs> I'll have to look at that. It sounds interesting. Yeah. Which is remarkable. This was both. Yeah, he was the little I and the big I. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's the idea of, of his dual nature and his incarnation. Yeah. yeah, and maybe a clue for the rest of us. Yes, we're all incarnations. Well, Jung often talked about the, uh, the other greater personality in us. Um, and in one lecture, he was talking about the uh, Dioscuri, the Dioscuri, you know, the, the twin boys. Mm. Uh, Pollux and Castor, and one was born from Zeus, and one was born from the king. 
mm. but they grew up in the womb together. They're born together as twins, but they mm. have two different fathers. Mm. Yeah. One is a divine and one is a human. And Jung said, we are the Dioscuri. I, I think that's what I believe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A time-limited temporal ego, and we have a eternal self. Yes. Figure. Yeah. yeah, or at least access to it. Um, we don't have it. No. Right. Yeah. Anne Ulanoff wrote a book called *The Functioning Transcendent* that I recently read, and she talked about the self being that which knows of God. Mm, I see which kind of landed on me as, mm -hmm. as, as right. Gnostic, yeah. Yeah, like you are not God, I am no. not. But there's something in us that knows of God or has access to or is from yeah. there, yeah. You know, or returns there or something, yeah. The Gnostic idea of the divine spark, yeah. Yeah, so I want to honor your time. And we're, we're at the end here. Um, it's been a pleasure, Whitney. I am so grateful to Dr. Stein for being so generous with his time and his presence today. You can find more from Murray Stein at his website, murraystein.com. That is M-U-R-R-A-Y-S-T-E-I-N.com. We will also list all of his books that we mentioned or referenced today in the show notes. The Hidden World is produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written by David Gomez. And I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to each other and yourselves.